the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. It has been called a day of rage, hate, violence, and death. The August 11th Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, was organized by a collection of white supremacists and white nationalists. Marching on the University of Virginia campus, bearing flaming torches and chanting, blood and soil, it turned deadly when a car driven by one white supremacist plowed into a crowd of counter-protesters. One woman died. More than a dozen others were hospitalized. While the reaction, this isn't who we are, was common, some prominent Christian leaders were either muted in their reaction or unapologetic. The focus of this Challenge 2.0 then is untangling white nationalism and Christianity. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our guests for this program. And first on my left is Reverend Terry Kylo of Neighbors in Faith and the Tracy Levine Center and an ordained Lutheran minister. Uh, just directly across the table from me is Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown, pastor of the Plymouth Church and the United Church of Christ. And on my immediate right is Dr. Catherine Putzlan Manlimos, uh, who is director of the Institute of Catholic uh, Thought and Culture at Seattle University. Thank you, each one of you, for joining us this morning on this very important and at the same time very troubling topic. I might just begin our conversation by asking each one of you sort of an orienting question. Why does this topic of this unfortunate meshing of white nationalism and Christianity matter to you? Catherine, we might begin with you. Well, it matters to me a great deal as an educator. I've learned from my students the profound impact of um, the reality of racism and white nationalism on them. Um, and I've heard and listened to their pain, and I've heard it from faculty colleagues as well. And as someone who teaches at a Catholic institution, I've found myself asking questions about how my own church relates to this and have been troubled mm -hmm. by the history of my own church and so have a really deep desire to delve into how to move away from um, the, the negative history related to my church around this. Excellent. Kelly? As a pastor um, of Plymouth Church, but also as a person who is African-American from uh, Georgia, this conversation is important to me because I feel that as pastoral leaders and folks who are affiliated with faith organizations, we need to be honest uh, to say that this conversation has not happened enough mm -hmm. and that the church has been complicit in um, the expansion of white nationalism in this country. And so this is an opportunity for us to determine and to say strongly that this is a moral conversation that we should be having and that the church can use its power and influence as well as its ability to lament and to confess so that we can have a real conversation and end some of the um, vitriol that we see that's um, increasing every day. So I grew up in white supremacy. Uh, my father, my grandfather, moved uh, to the United States uh, courageously on an 18-foot wood, handmade wooden boat with 12 other people and came out and, uh, and was given land that belonged to the Palouse people. 
And so I remember in the church I grew up in hearing uh, the song, um, Jesus Loves Little Children, All the Children of the World. But then looking up at a stained glass window that depicted a, a white Jesus. And then as I got older, went out to the parking lot and heard racial slurs regularly. And what I've learned about that is that when you've benefited from the oppression of other people, you can't live with yourself very well unless you try to diminish them and dehumanize them. And so I grew up in white supremacy, not as a white supremacist, but with the belief that, that people who are white-skinned um, are more important than others and are more human than others. When we look at this very topic that we're addressing today, if one event comes into our collective consciousness, my mind certainly, it was the Charlottesville, Virginia demonstrations and counter demonstrations after the violence that took place there. The statement was made, this isn't who we are. And yet a lot of us looked and said, I thought we were past that. How do you assess that statement, this isn't who we are? What's your reaction to it? What's your take on it? Whoever wants to begin first on that. Kelly? I think from a, um, a biblical perspective, um, in Genesis, um, God told Adam to name the animals. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, humankind took that seriously and literally and believes that it can name whatever it wants despite the evidence all around it and name and claim what's happened in that moment. So this isn't who we are. It's speaking over top as a veneer over the cauldron of hell mm -hmm. that was Charlottesville. <laughs> that was exactly who we are. And that's exactly who we've been. It's what we've done since the history of this, cre the creation of this country. And so um, the work that was has been done over the course of many, many years has been wonderful, but there, we have never undone the nature of this country as a white supremacist na nation that is racist. And so um, that statement, I think, was one um, that tried to be hopeful, but it was not truthful. I think at best it's who we hope to be, you know, those people who are speaking out that way. Because when I think about these issues as an immigrant to the United States as well, I think of, for example, the history of immigration to this country and how the history of immigration policies to this country are a history basically of racism and the exclusions of peoples over and over and over again. And, and we're still doing that. Um, and there's so much within the, the various faith traditions, including the Catholic faith tradition on the one hand that speaks contrary to it, yes. but even the Catholic Church has participated in excluding people from ordination for the longest time before people were included and saying certain people weren't fully human Truly. until at some point they decided they were fully human. Mm -hmm. So I think we, we can talk about who we hope to be maybe, but not who we are or who we've been. You know, the country as it exists now um, was really white supremacist from the beginning with what's known as the doctrine of discovery. Uh, which was a, a papal teaching that was accepted by almost every other church uh, on the European continent, that whatever Christian explorer showed up in a land first, they got to claim it mm -hmm. as if no one had lived there, mm -hmm. dehumanizing the non-Christians and black and brown skinned people who were there. And so there is a, a white supremacist underst understanding and assumption underneath a lot of church and underneath a lot of American culture. Mm -hmm. um, we had 50 million Native Americans in this country um, who were, were killed through a mass genocide mm -hmm. in the settling of this nation. And I remember as a kid reading that, that history 
-hmm. and, and sitting in classrooms saying, well, what about the people who used to hunt and gather on the land my school was built on? Mm -hmm. and, and yet the question about uh, the rightness and the, the moral rightness of that, of that settlement was never really raised in my school and never raised in my church. Absolutely. Any further reaction to any of what you've brought up? Yeah, and, and beyond the dehumanizing, what you've spoken of in terms of genocide, the, this um, understanding and ideology creates a, a violence that um, makes murder permissive. It's beyond dehumanizing. <laughs> it, our, our, our bodies are, are absolutely on the line in this conversation. And so that, that's another reason that makes this conversation um, so timely. Because on some hand, it's sort of like, well, you know, no one's burning crosses on your lawn. You know, no one's, you know, um, doing these outwardly or overt racist things to you, Kelly. But indeed, the microaggressions are the, the weight of those types of aggression. Mm -hmm. And I think there's violence implicit in the very environment and climate of this country to the point that every person of color should be able to claim PTSD. We are all traumatized. And so I, I am grateful that you lifted it up. It is a dehumanizing process, but it's also violence. You can't go to the Waffle House. Mm -hmm. You cannot sleep in your own dorm at Yale. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you have to, even if you can open the door to your, your dorm room, you still have to produce an ID. You can't listen to music. You can't drive. You can't eat. You can't walk. You can't breathe. This, this is utter violence upon the bodies of so many people in this country because we've uh, neglected to have the conversation and to get right, <laughs> to claim righteousness. The number of cases in which those events come out, we heard about Yale. We saw it in a major coffee chain recently as well. Absolutely. It's very, very troubling when you see it on a person-to-person -person basis on the streets. But then when you look at faith leaders that are not condemning this, at least facilitating or even outright approving of this. How do you as faith leaders respond to that? What's your reaction? Well, first, I, I would say that, that to not respond to it is to betray the very core of the Abrahamic tradition, mm -hmm. which is monotheism, uh, which was an attempt to say that all human beings are made in the image of God, are part of one human family, Whatever we may look like, whatever, whatever culture we may come from, however we may dress, we're all human beings made in that beautiful image of God. And so um, to, 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 to subspeciate and make some people less human than others hmm. is to betray the very core of the Abrahamic tradition um, that they proclaim uh, that they're a part of and that are faithful to. And certainly does not um, at all represent faithfulness to Jesus, who related to a vast variety of human beings and saw them all as equal to him and as human beings with him. Mm -hmm. The image of Jesus as the person who, who called in those who were excluded mm -hmm. is totally betrayed when you don't preach about this on the pulpit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's my biggest disappointment with some faith leaders is they're not willing to take this up. And if you don't take it up, who is going to guide Christians to think about these kinds of issues? I think, again, avoiding it seems to me a betrayal of the gospel, right? Mm -hmm. Who are those who are marginalized in our times? And, and how, are, how is it being done systemically too, right? Because I think, again, to avoid it is, is, is to avoid the reality in which we are called to live out the gospel and to, to be followers of Jesus. Absolutely. And I think it's even um, deeper than avoidance because in some level that gives 
um, hope to these leaders that they're just, they understand the nature of white mm. supremacy, they understand their own racism and the racism pervasive, but somehow they're just not talking about it. No, they are benefiting from <laughs> perpetuating white supremacy. I lived in Richmond, Virginia, and all of the things that were around me from the Falwells to the Robertsons, you know, there is not only um, a lack of conversation about it, they are absolutely um, benefiting from the from not talking about white supremacy. Mm -hmm. For you to be at Liberty University and the president of the university say, can I pull out my gun? You know, get carry permits. We must follow the dollar. Mm -hmm. This is a, a moral issue, it's a spiritual issue, but it's also a money issue. And folks are, um, we hold money as a God as much as we hold anything, even more so than the God that we know by way of the um, mm. monotheistic uh, religions that we, we claim. <laughs> and so I, I, I just wanna make sure that we have that piece in there because um, as people who are in pews, we are absolutely responsible for what is coming out of the pulpit. Mm -hmm. That brings up a key question. There are two different groups that you have to address. One of the faith leaders of which you might demand more or different responses and those in the pews. Let's begin mm -hmm. with the faith leaders. What would you, if you had that opportunity, if they were sitting on this side of the table, what would you say to them? I, I just find myself thinking about the fact, just kind of going off of what you were already saying, that there seems to be a total lack of awareness even, right? And it's, so it's not, as you said, it's not avoidance. And I would invite them to learn about the reality of the people to whom they minister. Mm -hmm. Right? to listen to the stories, to be willing to, to have those difficult conversations among themselves. For Catholics, very often I'm told uh, priests don't really like to hear from lay people telling them about these kinds of issues. To have the conversations among themselves. Um, to be, I, I just have this image of just a, a total lack of experiential knowledge and awareness of the depth and the impact of the reality of white supremacy mm -hmm. on people. Or even an awareness of the impact of white supremacy even in the way we celebrate our liturgy. Right, um, I, I, I struggle to try to imagine how to get, um, to get priests and pastors and leaders who might come from a sort of a white supremacist background without an awareness of it, to become aware that there's a real exclusion of peoples even in the way we are church very often in this country. Mm -hmm. right? My culture is very much suppressed very often or at least relegated mm -hmm. to the periphery. I think my appeal would be pay attention to who's in the pews to the cultures of the people in the pews. And if you don't happen to have a diverse pew, go beyond your own church and see who else is in the community mm -hmm. that you might not be noticing and whose stories you may not know and go out and learn what those are. And especially learn about the hurts and pains that people are going through because of white supremacy. You know, in Matthew 25, Jesus says, that as you've done to the least of these, you've done it to me. That's right. And so it really is incumbent on faith leaders to go beyond their pews, beyond their buildings, as you say, and to go out and listen to the stories of, of people and how they've been impacted by uh, white supremacy. I mean, get out and listen. And not just listen, but relate and love. Um, so I think faith leaders often think that they're there to, to, to support their own flock and to preach to their own choir. But that is in fact not the calling of the Christian or the Christian pastor. Um, it is the, it is their, they're calling to serve the entire community, and that entire community includes a lot of folk that are not in the pews. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Jesus calls us to go beyond whatever um, kind of comfort level we have. And, uh, and, and I would encourage faith leaders to model um, 
the, the, the truth-telling tradition okay. of, the, of, the, of the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition and, and recognize that sometimes uh, a lie that people are comfortable with not only damages the it, folk that, that are directly impacted by it, but also damages the people in the pew themselves. Absolutely. Yes, I would invite folks to um, discern how they might return to the prophetic um, uh, wisdom of the church. Mm -hmm. um, I find that often what happens is in pulpits are we're regurgitating what we hear. <laughs> and, yeah. and, it's, and it's not healing anyone, it's not fixing anything, it's really um, bolstering the individual minister and, and maintaining their salary. Let me just say that. And that's the church overall as mm -hmm. well. Somehow we have to break through and pierce through the, um, the fear because, you know, you're afraid that you'll get, get um, responses. At my own church, there was a, a banner removed, um, love your LGBTQ neighbors. It was removed. Someone literally cut the zip ties and took it off of our building. There's a mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter banner. Mm -hmm. Someone called and said, take it down. You take it down. I said, are you a member here? No, I just am offended. So your retinas saw the banner and you were offended and you believe you can call and tell us to take it. So, I mean, there, there's always danger implicit in it. However, if we are not telling the truth, mm -hmm. so many people um, are held in the balance um, and are um, in, in the way of violence because we are not telling the truth. And that reaches the fact that the truth is not always comfortable. And no, then we not. confront the issue of truth or alternative truth or alternative mm -hmm. facts, as we've heard a great mm -hmm. deal. And that leads us to the next group. You've all alluded to that to a degree, and that is those that are sitting in the pews or those that you might like to have sitting in the pews but are not. How do you reach out? How do you uh, impact those people then? It's funny. It's when, in, when I think about that question, I realize that I'm possibly t talking to at least two groups, right? Mm -hmm. Persons of color and white folk, mm -hmm. right? And for me, one of the things that's helped mm -hmm. me kind of uh, have a deeper sense of the reality of white supremacy and racism that that's so marks this country is literally just learning the history of this country. You know, mm -hmm. learning the long history of people, peoples that have been oppressed, and those people who eventually over time get included to being counted as white folk mm -hmm. and what happens to people who aren't. And for white folks, I'd say, learn the history. Mm -hmm. Learn why you should be living in gratitude rather than a sense of superiority, right? And for persons of color, we need to reclaim our dignity. The reality of internalized oppression often brings us down very profoundly and we lose sense of our giftedness. And so we need to reclaim the gifts of, the, of, of our particular cultures and heritage and learn to share that with courage. Um, for me, that's sort of my biggest calls to people in the pews, especially persons of color in the pews or whose, whose sense of giftedness, I think they've forgotten because we've forgotten because we've been told that it's not valuable. We need to claim that and offer it. That's what we're called to. Absolutely. I would also say, um, based on what you've said, there must be a sense of resiliency in those who have um, been most vulnerable and most oppressed. Um, we must honor the fact that we are the children of the ones who struggle, the children of the ones who, who made it, the children of the ones who um, uh, traveled the Middle Passage. And somehow uh, those who are in the pews 
must say that if my voice and my experience is not valued here, mm -hmm. then I won't be here. Mm -hmm. We must um, also, those who are clergy and faith leaders, must take seriously those who are in the pew. And I also want to say that it cannot just be an educational venture. We are reading Jim Wallace. We are reading uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. We're reading the work. But somehow there must be a spiritual awakening that un until we find empathy and are truly deeply listening to those on the bottom and believing them, mm -hmm. then there won't be a difference made. I have some very bright, I know of some very bright friends, some folks who truly have read all the work more than I have. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that transformation has happened um, in a way that they can claim anti-racism. And so that's the, my um, call to those who are in the pews. You know, I, to, speaking to the white folk in the pews, I would say, first, remember that God loves you because God chooses to, not because you're white. <laughs> and the God's love isn't going to run out. And the God's love isn't based on your parents being right, your grandparents being right, the United States being right. Mm -hmm. It's not based on you being right. Um, God loves us as we are in every step of the journey that we're on. And so first of all, I would just tell folk to relax. And remember, God loves you even if you realize you're wrong. In fact, in Christian theology and practice, you know, baptism is all about daily transformation. That means that we have something to be transformed you know, from as well as as being transformed into. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to feel some grief and sadness at, at what we've participated in and what we've benefited from. It's okay to change because God's love is with you the whole way. And then what you get at the end of that journey or toward the end of that journey is many more sisters and brothers who are loved just like you are. Absolutely. Perhaps in closing, let me ask one question. If you had one thing to say to another person that perhaps does not see the extent of the problem, uh, does not understand why they need to transform themselves, as each of you have mentioned, what would that one suggestion be? I find myself seeing um, faces of some of my students and some of the students I've worked with. And it would be sit down with a young woman of color and listen to her story and listen to the harm that she's experienced and how the experience of white supremacy and racism has had a profound impact on her own sense of self-worth and the hard work she has to do to overcome that. Mm -hmm. I think my invitation would be something like the one Peggy McIntosh heard um, where she tried to deal with the oppression of uh, her own life as a woman and then it bridged her into the oppression of uh, African-American folk mm -hmm. and other people of color. My um, invitation wouldn't be to read and to educate or to, my, my invitation would, to say, would be to say, find the own place where you don't feel you've been heard or listened to that is most broken, most vulnerable, where you need um, God or whatever you believe in to impact your life mm -hmm. and imagine that that can transform into empathy for the other. Um, there's something um, about selfishness, but there's also something about the lack of self-care that we promote from the church that um, does not allow for folks to hear mm -hmm. the other. 
And so I would say start with you. Though I believe in community and collectivity, I know in this individualistic society, start with yourself and find that place where God may allow a bridge to be born to the other. You know, I was bullied as a kid. Um, in part because my mother had multiple sclerosis, and so people were afraid it was catching, right? And, and so folk kind of distanced themselves from our family. Um, and so I, I agree with Kelly, with both of you, that we, we, we need to start with our own sense of pain and what was that like for me? And, and, and then beyond that then, learn about people of color um, from people of color. <laughs> Quit Quit learning about them from third parties on TV or on the internet that want to tell you about them and want to frame the debate. Um, and when we go out and encounter, when I go and encounter my Muslim neighbors, when I go out and encounter someone, um, it's not just their humanity I'm finding. It's actually my own. That's right. Because we are all children of one God and we're all in this together and, and our humanities are bound up with each other. Catherine, Kelly, and Terry, thank you so much this is a topic that easily deserves not just one program, but multiple ones. I hope you'll join us again, and I'd like to thank all of you for joining us for this Challenge 2.0. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Cuccio. Dean Olson is the production assistant.